Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Tuesday the 15th of September, we held a webinar on the Cannabis Legislation and Control Referendum. This was the first part in a series of four online panel discussions, delving into some of the big issues facing New Zealanders in the upcoming election. Okay, so hopefully um, everyone who wants to join us um, is now on. So thank you again for joining in this um, 2020 election spotlight series. And today we'll be considering some of the issues related to the cannabis legalisation and control referendum. So each of the speakers that we have today who I'll introduce in a minute will talk for about 10 minutes and raise some of the debates that they see as important um, around this piece of legislation. So um, if I introduce myself, first of all, um, I'm Fiona Hutton. I'm an associate professor at the Institute of Criminology here at Victoria University. Um, I've been working and teaching in the areas of drug use, drug policy, and harm reduction for close to 25 years, which is slightly scary to think it's actually been that long. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, that's a, in a nutshell my specialist area of expertise and um, a bit about my background. So I'm delighted that our um, two speakers, Tanya and Mamiroa, have joined the webinar today. They're two inspiring women who are doing important and stellar work um, in law reform in their respective areas of expertise, um, who are passionate about drug law reform, wider criminal justice reform, equity and harm reduction. So if I just introduce them a little bit further. So Mamiroa Mirito, Kau Piki Te Ora Coordinator at Te Runanga o Nati Pikiao, working in a public health role that focuses on suicide prevention for her iwi, Nati Pikiao. Mamaroa is also co-president of the Māori National Tertiary Students Association, who advocates for Māori learners in tertiary education. So welcome, Mamaroa. Tanya Savisky-Mead, who is the... Um, Director of Just Speak, a youth-powered movement that aims for transform transformational change in the criminal justice system. She um, is an ex-student of Victoria University, so that's awesome, and also has an MA from the University of British Columbia. So she's been working in community development, human rights policy, and political communication for a number of years. So welcome, um, Tanya, and thanks very much for joining me this morning on this um, webinar. Okay, so the order of the speakers, I'm just going to talk um, a bit generally about some of the key issues and debates around um, the cannabis referendum to sort of kick us off, really. And then we're going to hear from Tanya, and then Mamiroa is going to um, be lucky last um, to talk about some of the issues from um, her perspective. So, first of all, um, the issues surrounding the cannabis referendum then are many and varied. It's a hugely complex topic, and it's a topic that many people from diverse backgrounds feel really strongly about. 
And in amongst all the arguments and debates then, we often forget, I think, those of us who work in this area, just what a huge deal this is for New Zealand. So it's a huge, it's a massive issue that affects a number of people. And we have a large opportunity then on October the 17th to change our approach to the way we deal with cannabis. We have the opportunity to properly address any harms related to cannabis use. And let's be really clear um, that cannabis use can cause harms for some people. So we have the opportunity to properly and effectively address those harms, as well as to take a public focused approach to the use and regulation of cannabis. So for some people then, this is a big ask. Stigma, sensationalised reporting around illegal drugs like cannabis affect the ways that we think about illegal drugs and their consumers. However, we must also recognise that all drugs, including things like alcohol and caffeine, not just those that are made illegal under our current drug laws, have the potential to do harm. And that we are all drug users ourselves. And we tend to get all hot under the collar, talking about drug users and junkies and criminals, whilst chucking down glasses of Pinot, craft beer and triple shot mocha lattes. So we forget that we are all drug users ourselves and people who use cannabis and other drugs are just like us in the main. So we really need to move beyond these stereotypes and sensationalised images and discourses and think really carefully about how we want to deal with substances like cannabis in our society, in our communities. How, as New Zealanders, do we want to respond to cannabis use, to cannabis harms? And one of the arguments here, then, is that we should move towards a health-focused rather than a criminal justice focused approach. Our current drug laws date from 1975, so they're nearly as old as I am, um, and they're seen as outdated, in need of reform, and commonly referred to as not fit for purpose. There is also the recognition globally and in New Zealand that prohibition, the war on drugs, is not achieving its aims to reduce harm, to stop supply, and to reduce drug use. Drugs are cheaper, purer and more available than ever before, with drug markets often described as being thriving. Around the globe then, reforms have been enacted to approach drug use in a different way. So from the decriminalisation of all drugs in the early 2000s in countries like Portugal and the Czech Republic, to the legal markets that we now have in the US, Uruguay, Canada, the Australian Capital Territory. Countries like Luxembourg have also come out, if you like, um, planning to be the first European country to have a legal cannabis market. Um, Israel also decriminalised the use of cannabis um, in 2019. 2019, Norway also announced it would take a health-based approach to drug use rather than a criminal-focused approach. So I think there's a real groundswell then of international support 
for approaching the issues related to illegal drugs differently. And in recognition that the approach that we're taking at the moment is not doing what we thought it would in 1975. So perhaps in New Zealand then, we may join this pioneering group of reformers um, on October the 17th. So in New Zealand then, we will have to decide how we want to approach cannabis. And let's be very clear here. Cannabis is widely available in New Zealand, including to young and underage people. It is widely used and its use is already normalized in some groups in our society. Many of the harms and problems that exist around cannabis use developed under our current war on drugs approach. These problems already exist and voting no will not change any of this. So the question becomes then, how do we want to deal with the cannabis use and the cannabis market that already exists in New Zealand and in our communities? Do we want to carry on with a system that is not working, that causes, causes a large amount of harm through criminalizing vulnerable groups, that has not stopped the use of cannabis? Or do we want to take a fresh, uniquely New Zealand approach based on public health principles, harm reduction and equity? So I think these are the main questions that we want to consider um, in this webinar and the things that we need to, as New Zealanders need to think really carefully about in terms of the referendum. So just before I hand over to our speakers, um, I'm just gonna really quickly um, note some key points about the um, cannabis legalization and control bill which is um, the thing that the piece of legislation that we will be voting on um, on October the 17th. So I should also say that we are voting to start a process. So we're voting to start the process of the bill going to select committee, of the bill going through several readings in parliament. So if there are things that we don't like about the bill, then we will get the chance to submit on these issues through um, the bill reading and um, processes that happen um, when legislation is enacted. So the Cannabis Legalisation and Control Bill then just very quickly aims to reduce harm to communities and particularly young people by restricting access to cannabis, taking a health focused approach to cannabis and taking control of the existing underground market. So to do this, it will do things like restrict access to cannabis to those who are aged 20 and over. Cannabis will only be available in licensed premises. There'll be no advertising or sponsorship allowed. Um, plain packaging will be in force. There'll be no products allowed that appeal to young people. And I think a lot of the detail of this bill puts to bed some of the um, scaremongering and um, sensationalism that we've had around, you know, um, cannabis has got a kid's market and kid's menu and all this kind of thing. And clearly the bill is demonstrating that we have really learned our lesson 
from things like alcohol and tobacco. And we're very mindful of um, keeping products out of circulation that appeal to young people. And most importantly, those who are under 20 who are caught with cannabis will not face criminal charges. And I expect that our other two speakers that I'm going to hand over to now um, will talk much more um, about this. Okay, so um, as is the case with technology, we have um, temporarily lost the picture of Tanya. So I'm going to put Mamiroa on the spot now and ask her if she would kindly step in and um, tell us about some of the issues from her perspective about the cannabis referendum. Thank you, Mamiroa. And I'm also a Kaupiki Tiora coordinator for Te Runga o Ngāti Pikeo. Um, so with both of my roles, I work a lot with Rangatahi Māori um, and I work for my iwi. And so that's kind of the perspective um, that I, I'm coming from today with this corridor, and I really just wanted to use the space to talk about uh, why exactly I will be voting yes in the referendum. Um, to, to start us off quite broadly, the system as is is not working for Māori, and it's causing disproportionate harm to us. So I'm going to just focus on, on, on two key areas, um, and I know I have an expert like Tanya in here that can go um, in depth, especially around the justice one. Uh, but for me, the reason why I'm voting yes, um, one of the key points is because um, the current laws that we have um, disproportionately affect Māori. And I'll go into in-depth and, and give you guys um, some, some details about that. When it comes to the system that we have now, uh, we know that police make decisions um, around discretion or diversion. So if they catch someone and it's a low-level offence, say, possession, um, they can use their discretion to choose, you know, what, what they should do with this person. Um, and at current, if it's a Māori, they're most likely going to end up going through the criminal justice system um, and they're going to end up being convicted. And so that's something that I see as hugely problematic. Now, in, in total... Um, there's a greater investment in our courtrooms, in our prisons, um, than there is in health services and health treatments. And so I see this bill as a means for us to reorientate the resources that we have into the spaces where it's needed. For me, what does this look like in a tangible sense? Now, I know I just read off some, some statistics. Um, I actually know Fano that I've been hugely impacted by just one member. Being, um, being convicted of a low-level possession crime. Um, so I know Fano that were declined from um, travelling overseas to a funeral because um, they had a Fano member um, in their group who had a, a low-level conviction uh, and they weren't allowed to travel. The fact that it was, it was one person that had that conviction, but it, it negatively impacted the entire Fano unit and it stopped them from um, being with the rest of their Fano and from this, um, from the um, stepping through their grief and their trauma, um, that was just, you know, it was I'm not trying to justify um, the mistake that they made, but it had such a long-lasting impact that I see in my eyes was so unnecessary. 
And if we, if we did things like reorientating um, our funding and our resourcing from the criminal justice system into health services, health interventions and treatments, um, it would be so much more meaningful and helpful for whānau um, instead of the punishments and consequences that we see nowadays. Um, on a tangent, jumping into another topic I want to talk about is um, why I want to vote for it in terms of health. Um, I know that stigmatisation um, is a huge barrier as to why um, some of our tawira especially don't seek help when they're struggling with addiction. Um, if you're utilising a drug and it's illegal, um, so much more harder for you um, to go in and, you know, see health professionals and admit, you know, that you're doing something that the rest of society is currently frowned, frowning at or, you know, frowned upon. Um, and so I see this bill as a means to um, reduce that stigmatisation and increase access to services. Um, on top of that too, I see this bill as a means for us to make a greater investment in terms of um, kaupapa Māori services. So it's not just about changing up our services, reorientating our resources, um, but also um, yeah, reinvesting uh, and improving the current services that we do have. I think that's something that would be necessary if this, if this bill were to pass. Um, but all in all, from personal experience, I see so much harm um, coming through um, from whānau that I know, um, having terrible experiences um, when going through the court system, um, when dealing with police, um, when um, following on from that, you know, when it comes to um, struggling to get employment. Um, and all of that links through, um, in most instances from the whānau that I have talked to, um, links to low-level crimes such as possession. Um, and I just see this bill as a means for us to change that, to shift resources away um, and use them in a more meaningful way. Um, now, I know Tanya is going to speak probably more towards the justice side, but for those of you, especially if there are tawira that are watching, um, that are a bit unsure as to, you know, how do you start these conversations when it comes to um, actively pushing for a yes vote? Um, there are great um, tools you can actually utilise which allow you to shape your personal experiences and your story to help you talk to different audiences. And one of them, which I know Tanya is going to talk about too, um, is, a, is a checklist that Just Speak have actually just launched um, about how to um, how to talk about the cannabis referendum, not just with your whānau, but even with your workmates, just in general. And I'd suggest um, looking at that and the structure that they use and have set um, to help you yeah, get your corridor across um, in a safe way and in a meaningful way as well. Um, but just from me, I just see a whole lot of harm happening with the current system that we have. Uh, and I know it, we definitely need to change it up um, to refocus what we're doing now yeah, and redirect our resources into more meaningful ways that can create, um, that can reduce harm really for our whānau. And so I think I'm going to chuck it back over to uh, Fiona. <laughs> Thank you, Mamiro. That's um, a really interesting um, personalised view um, uh, based on experiences of um, friends of Farno um, around um, the criminalisation of people who 
use cannabis. So I should say before we go over to Tanya, um, that the statistics also bear out Mamiroa's um, experiences. So Maori are overrepresented in drugs offence statistics compared to their um, proportion of the population. And many scholars in this area have talked about bias in policing, discrimination, um, particular groups in our society come under the scrutiny of police much more often than others. Um, I myself, for example, in my whole 51 years, have been stopped twice by the police. And one of those times was to ask me if I was all right. So that goes to show how disproportionate um, the police gaze and the official gaze can often be. So the statistics bear out um, Mamiroa's um, experiences in the fact that Māori and young Māori in particular are disproportionately affected by our drug laws as they are right now. We're going to um, hand over to Tanya now, um, who's going to talk about some of the issues from her perspective. So thank you, Tanya. Oh, kia ora Fiona and Mamairoa, um, thank you for having me. Um, as Fiona mentioned, my name's Tania um, and I am the director of Just Speak um, and our focus is um, on transformational change in criminal justice for a fair and flourishing Aotearoa. As, you know, as has been discussed, I think our, our interest in this issue is very much around the deeply unequal outcomes in criminal justice that our current cannabis um, policing um, and criminal justice systems, you know, the way that they, those things interact. Um, and we think that the cannabis referendum is a really important opportunity to start laying the foundations for a much more effective and more compassionate system of responding to social harm, including drug use. So that's really the just speak kind of angle, I guess, on this referendum. Um, it is one small piece of a very big puzzle uh, around how to build a fair and equitable society, but it's a really important one because if we do change this law, uh, I think we can set, set ourselves on a pathway for responding compassionately and effectively to wider social issues and, and making pragmatic choices about uh, particularly how we deal with drugs, including cannabis. Um, as both the other panelists have um, have mentioned, you know, I think one of the big whys um, in this referendum has been um, has been about how police in particular, um, the role of police in upholding our um, cannabis laws. Um, police have a lot of discretion in in particularly what is considered low-level offending. And although cannabis very much is, is a is a illegal substance, so it's legal to you know use it, to possess it, to deal it, um, it is considered low-level. And that's one of the many kind of um, confusing contradictions of the way that we currently deal with cannabis is that um, there has been in some there there is evidence of a kind of de facto decriminalization, but only in certain circumstances and for certain people. And that's probably the biggest and most important, I think, um, point that you know those watching should take away from this webinar is that it is that the that potential for police and other agencies, other government agencies, to use their discretion, while perhaps well-intentioned at the beginning, is the thing that is leading to these deeply unequal outcomes, particularly for Māori, most, most prominently for Māori, and probably Pacifica Fano as well. And this particularly uh, impacts young people. It impacts young people because young people are like 
many of us, you know, have all experimented with um, various substances in our in our youth. Um, but it also particularly affects young people because they are they're more visible. So they they tend to have higher rates of interactions with police because they are out in the world in a way that older people aren't. Um, and because any of those interactions that they have might might have with police in a way that those escalate into uh, charges or or um, ultimately sentences for cannabis have this profound impact um, on them for the rest of their life. As Mamairo mentioned, you know that can then go on to affect you um, in the way when you travel. It can affect the people you live um, you live with, the people that you love, um, your abilities to to study and to take undertake certain kinds of work. And that is totally backwards. I think we can all agree that not, none of us benefit at all. None of us as a community benefit from the system in which some young people, based on the colour of their skin, are punished for many, many years after using a substance or possessing a substance uh, that other people use with no consequences. Um, that is the definition of an unfair outcome, and I don't think that it's one that we should stand for. Um, so the evidence for it, I think, as both Fiona and Mamairo have, have mentioned, is very clear. Some research that JustVeek um, released earlier this year showed just how kind of clear-cut this, this bias that exists systemically across police is that um, Māori are, you know, nearly two times more likely to, to have a first proceeding with police, so to have that first, whether it be a warning or whether it be... Um, um, some other kind basically being arrested or and then we, as that progresses through the system that disproportionality of of Māori and Pākehā drastically increases when you look at the charge rate so who is actually charged with for example possessing cannabis or um, a utensil or other things like that so it's really really um, a long-standing and well-established fact that this bias exists and there are many things that we need to do to tackle that one way that we can stop this bias doing harm right now um, to communities who are already marginalised is to make a very clear line uh, under cannabis to make sure that uh, we don't see this biased enforcement play out. And of course, the most important um, reason for this is that rangatahi Māori suffer these very serious consequences, even if even if people don't serve a prison sentence, for example, the stigma and the shame of being having been charged and having gone through the court system is something that follows people for a lot of their life, not to mention the costs associated with it, things like loss of jobs. There are other massive issues with the criminalisation of cannabis. One of them, as both the other panellists have mentioned, is that instead of getting help when people are do have a problematic usage, so if they're using um, in a way that is unhealthy, um, that, that is affecting other parts of their life, affecting their family, instead of being able to go to a, a medical professional or someone that they trust in their community and asking for help, you know, they're scared to do so and they feel afraid to do so because the consequences may actually ultimately hurt them even more. And again, I think that's not something that we should stand for um, in, our, in our society, in our community, um, because the consequences of that affect all of us. To, to me, those are some of the most important and sort of powerful arguments for, for legalising cannabis. Um, and I think that it's very hard to argue to retain the status quo when we have this, this very persuasive evidence about, um, about what it's doing, particularly to young Māori. Now, I know that people are, of course, concerned about, you know, that what happens, you know, that we don't always know what happens when we when we make change legislation. It's, you know, can be a bit of, um, there can be a bit of fear and anxiety about 
um, what a new system might look like. And I think that's where it's really important to appoint people to um, expert analysis like that done by the chief science advisor, which looks at, in detail at all the various aspects of this bill, um, including where we can draw lessons from overseas. So in Canada, as Fiona mentioned, Canada, um, parts of the United States, um, where legalization of, of cannabis has, um, has, has now been going on for long enough that we can draw some, some really relevant conclusions because the legislation is quite similar. And I think, you know, while we ought to be as we are with big tobacco and alcohol, concerned about, you know, um, the potential for some companies to make significant profits of substances, um, we don't deal with that by pushing a substance into the black market, because what, that, what happens then is that there is no control on what people are buying, who is buying it, particularly young people have greater access when it's not regulated, um, and we have no ability to make sure that the, the profits of that go back into the, the very um, systems that we need to prevent harmful usage like health providers in the communities and so forth. So those are some all just touching lightly on some of the really important aspects of this piece of legislation that will help us ultimately to reduce the harm from, from all kinds of substances, including cannabis, um, and that will make sure that there are appropriate you know, um, controls on the market. Um, just really quickly, because um, Mamaro mentioned that you know one of the things that um, we at Just Speak have been doing is looking at and focusing on how we can build a bigger coalition for people who understand um, and feel motivated to to vote for yes. And and for us, I think it's a real obvious one, but it isn't obvious for everyone. And I do would love to direct people to um, the resource that Just Speak has um, developed along with um, the workshop who are research um, think and do tank based here in Wellington, which looks specifically at what are the kinds of values that you can emphasize if you want to help people in your life understand why voting yes is so important. Um, unfortunately, facts are not enough. <laughs> we, we know that from many forms of kind of um, many issues around social progress where if, if, if only statistics are enough to change people's mind, but they're not because you know most of us um, are not are motivated by things like equity, you know, compassion, um, fairness and belonging, um, universalism, things that make us feel good and things that make us feel connected to each other. And I think if, if those of you watching this webinar or in my case, listening, listening to me feel that, um, you know, the case that we have made is compelling, I really encourage you to, to go one step further and have a conversation with someone in your life, in your life who you think might be open to voting yes, um, because in doing so, I think we we have the power to make choices that will really benefit all of us as a community um, um, when when we when we move away from this this sort of criminalising process and into one that is focused on helping people. Um, yeah, and a quick shout out, I guess, on that. Just final th thoughts. Quick shout out on that to a number of different kind of groups and coalitions who have. Uh, brought people from across the political spectrum and from different areas of expertise, including criminal justice, um, uh, Maori health providers, um, alcohol and drug um, counselling specialists, um, to build a case for yes. And um, some of those include Health Not Handcuffs, which is a coalition primarily driven by the New Zealand Drug Foundation, but also Yes 2020, which is a coalition of rangatahi from from across Aotearoa, um, talking about why yes matters to them as young people. Um, 
being part of those coalitions or, or groups or supporting those groups has been a really important part, I think, for me and in helping understand just how many people are touched by the failures of our current criminal justice um, approach to, to, to cannabis. Um, and I, I found it really um, a powerful way to kind of to understand all the intersecting issues that that are at play when we talk about this bill. So if you're interested in learning more, I recommend both of those places um, for further resource. Uh, that's that's me for now. Happy to answer some questions though. Okay, well, great. Thank you, um, Tanya, for raising some really important issues there around criminal justice um, and the values that we um, that lie behind our feelings about cannabis and other drug use. And Tanya mentioned um, evidence and facts. So as a true academic, I might just talk about some of the evidence that we have from other places that have um, changed their drug laws and done things like legalisation. Okay, so as I go around and I talk to people about these issues, there are several issues that come up. So people's main concerns are that cannabis use will increase, particularly amongst young people, that drug impaired driving will increase, um, and that people with mental health problems will just have more severe mental health problems because cannabis will be more available. So I should say that the cannabis referendum then, what we're voting on, is not about making cannabis more available. It's not about making drug-impaired driving legal. Drug-impaired driving is illegal now, and it will remain illegal um, if the yes vote goes through. Um, it's also not about saying that cannabis use is harmless and safe to use. Um, sorry, I'm just um, saying that there's a question. Now I'm on an unfamiliar computer, so I'm just gonna click on there. Do you have any comments on the impact on community health in other countries that have legalized cannabis? Um, I do actually, I can talk a little bit about that in terms of um, mental health and things like that. Basically, um, what the evidence tells us about cannabis use, psychosis and mental health is that we don't have the evidence right now to say that cannabis use causes psychosis or mental health problems. However, what we do know is that there are a number of risk factors of cannabis use that are associated with increased um, mental health issues. So these are underage use, adolescent use, use of high potency products, frequent use, and genetic factors and pre-existing mental health problems. Heavy cannabis use is associated with greater psychosis risk only when use begins in adolescence and is associated with those factors that I just listed. So as Leighton argued in 2019, importantly then, there is no compelling evidence that legalization increases adolescent use. So I think that's the first thing to say. Use can increase in adult groups, but adolescent underage use doesn't appear to increase um, in jurisdictions that have legalised. So I guess that's the first thing to say about community and health and mental health and well-being. Um, Tanya, do you want to add anything else to that? Yeah, um, thanks, Fiona. I think that um, obviously... That is a, is a reasonable concern about, obviously, as I mentioned, changes to laws and, and the unforeseen consequences. But 
my understanding of looking at the most comparable states is that um, so other other jurisdictions where legalization has happened um, is that while use may have you know overall it seems that use does not drastically increase particularly for young people as you're going to mention that there's a bit of a a, a wobble as often things happen when when sort of there's broad level legislative change that you might see some fluctuation um, but ultimately in the long-term trends where we can analyze them that that, that evidence doesn't bear out um, we do see also that um, in those comparative states that the ability to um, better measure and understand usage patterns because of the decrease in stigma because of the decrease in fear of people reporting their usage is also quite clear um, so it's not a um, I think there's a huge benefit in having better understanding information about patterns of usage um, so that we can direct appropriate resources to those communities and to those people, um, which is difficult to do now because obviously our ability to gather data on that is, is very much undermined by, by the fact that it's a criminal um, criminalised. Um, one other thing I would add is that legalisation, and this is actually some work that Fiona supervised um, in a report that Just Be commissioned, um, we were interested in what what are the, some of the lessons that we can learn from the states in, in, the, in America which have legalised cannabis in Canada when it comes to the community harm done by criminalisation. So when we look at um, the very serious consequences that happen for people when they are punished for using uh, cannabis um, when others are not, which is that, that deep unfairness question. Um, and what we did see, um, and Fiona will correct me if I'm misinterpreting the results, but my understanding is that what we see is that it does require some vigilance um, from police, from health agencies, from the government generally to make sure that in a legalised market, um, the things that remain legal, so for example, growing um, large amounts at home or um, possessing a amount over the daily allowed limit. So those things, of course, are still very much regulated. And it's important that um, we don't create more harm for the communities that have been most affected by, by drug use and by the criminalization of drug use by continuing with this heavy-handed approach. Because that's that's ultimately how we get a um, progress, I think, on making sure that it is treated and supported, um, is by ensuring that it, that the uh, the re regulations and the laws are applied fairly, um, that people then don't feel stigmatised or fearful about sharing information about their usage or seeking help. So I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind with, with the conversation around harm is just reminding ourselves that criminalisation itself does a lot of harm and we need to be mindful of that. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Tanya. Mamiro, do you want to add anything on that? Uh, I think Tanya um, did a nice job with some of that one. Cool, thank you. Well, listen, I can see that we have a couple of questions come through in various um, avenues. So I'll just try and address some of those questions now. Thank you to our audience members for putting them up there. So somebody um, is concerned about how we do keep cannabis away from adolescents. And, you know, it's quite rightly noting, look at the problems that we've had around alcohol. So I think the first thing to say about that um, question is that we're not managing to keep it away from adolescents right now. So we're not managing to keep it away from young people, from underage people, 
um, the old adage that drug dealers don't ask for ID um, is really clear in the use of illicit drugs like cannabis amongst young people. So the idea is that if we bring it into, so if we sort of drag it kicking and screaming into the open, um, out of the dark corners, if you like, and bring it into a legal regulated market, that we can do a number of things. We can have um, an age limit, we can have limits on things like potency, we can enforce asking for ID and so on. And as I was noting earlier, We've also been, we're also really mindful of some of the issues around alcohol and tobacco um, and how products have been designed specifically to appeal to young people. Um, and we're also looking across to the US who have a highly commercialized cannabis market and saying, we do not want that in the New Zealand context. So it's, uh, the hope is, is that by bringing in these controls, um, it will actually be less available to young people than it is in the illegal market, which kind of feels counterintuitive, I suppose, and a bit odd to say that. But I think we need to remember that, you know, cannabis is so widely available in our society right now um, that anybody can um, get hold of it if, if without trying too hard. Um, so I think that also if we have a legal market, we can do things that we can't do under decriminalization. So we can have, you know, controls on all sorts of things. We can have insist on harm reduction information at point of sale. And we can also um, spend our money on education and on intervention and on support for young people. So all of these things in the long term, I mean, these things are not going to, you know, overnight, nobody under the age of 20 is suddenly going to not be using cannabis. And there will always be people that sit outside that legal system. But my question then is, well, what do we do? Do we just leave it as it is? And we just go, well, we won't even try to do something different. Um, so I think we can do a lot of things under a legal market that we can't do under decriminalization um, and that we're not being successful in keeping it away from adolescents at the moment. So we need to try a different path. So Mamiroa, Tanya, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, just to say, I guess a quick comment on the legalization versus decriminalization question is um, that, as Fiona mentioned, decriminalization doesn't allow us to control the actual nature of the substance. So one of the big problems we've seen in, in New Zealand, of course, is the use of synthetic cannabinoids, um, particularly um, which have very serious health consequences. Um, and I think that goes to show that one of the powers of legalization is that we know we have a much clearer idea of what is in those substances and how to make sure it isn't things that are very, very harmful, um, like we saw some of those in synthetics. Um, also, as Fiona mentioned, I think just to reiterate the, the angle that um, young people, there's probably much more control in this bill uh, about young people's usage than there is for alcohol. Also much stricter, um, one might argue, perhaps too strict, but oh, that's a discussion for another day, stricter consequences for people who are found to be selling to people under the age limit of 20 um, than there is for alcohol. And I think there's a little inconsistency there because both substances are harmful, particularly if consumed in large quantities by young people. Um, but like I said, question for another day. Um, so I think that, you know, one of the things that we do have to remember is that young people are using it all the time. And so this system has a much, has much more um, checks and balances in it to allow us to make sure that um, we try to prevent young people using it 
um, at a particular ages where it is harmful to their brain development. Um, although I think that the evidence for that, you know, while it is very much a, 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 an issue that we need to consider, has perhaps been overinflated because it is conflated with the um, kind of the war on drugs mentality and a, a general fear mongering around around drugs. Um, as separate to, to alcohol um, and other legal substances that are ultimately drugs, as Fiona mentioned. So while, of course, we should all take um, the, you know, seriously the potential health impacts of people using any substance at an age where it's not appropriate for them and it will affect them, we also have to remember that we do very little to support young people now by throwing them um, into the justice system if they are caught um, and not providing anything that helps them with that usage. And that is the one of the many, many benefits of legalization is that that line about supporting people with a health-based approach is very clear. There is no there's no concern about the interpretation of that. And that's, yeah, I think that kind of answers both the legalization versus decriminalization question and also the um, importance of this legislation for young people and for young people in your life. Thank you, Tanya. Ramiroy, would you like to add anything? Yeah, the one thing I want to say when it comes, we've talked a lot about um, young people. Um, what's most concerning to me in the groups that I work with is knowing that those that are engaging in illegal behaviours that are smoking now, that are using now, um, whether it's a yes or a no vote, they're not. it's not going to change their behaviour. So the best that we can do as a society is make sure that... Um, you know, I'm not saying we all go and vote yes, even though I technically am, um, is that we can then have to change our system and the current the current um, way that it works um, to better suit and accommodate those needs. Um, and so, yeah, when we talk about young people, just think, yes, there are people now that are, that are struggling with addiction um, and we need to change our system to suit that. An ex yeah, an excellent point. Thank you. Um, somebody's asked around, um, uh, you know, that the way people consume cannabis may change under a legal market. So we may see a change to perhaps less harmful ways of using cannabis than smoking. Um, and I think that will be interesting if a yes vote does go through and to see how that develops under a public health focused approach. And I think, you know, at the moment, the government is taking a really cautious approach and being very strict about what we're actually legalising, which is only the plant form of cannabis right now. Um, so depending on, you know, if that goes through, depending on how that goes, we may well see um, more health focused approaches towards different ways of using um, cannabis. And somebody um, put a question here. Um, you know, what else needs to be in place if we legalised? Um, is New Zealand prepared? And will there be time for New Zealand to get prepared um, around, uh, you know, reducing access to young people and so on? And I think that's an excellent question. Um, and for some of us, it feels like this year has been a really crazy year and suddenly we have these really important decisions to be making. Um, and I think I said at the start of the session that we're starting a process if we're going to be voting yes. So there will be time um, as the bill, you know, makes its way through Parliament and so on. It's not going to happen um, the week after um, the referendum. So I think we can be assured that 
people who are working really hard in this area, people who work with vulnerable groups with young people um, can have time to be consulted and, and be prepared for um, a legal cannabis market, if that's the way that New Zealand decides to go. So we're asked, someone is asking, does the proposed law guarantee that the funds will be there for health support for users who need it? Tanya, do you want to field that one? Yes, thanks. That's a really good question. And I think that's one that we, you know, there was a real, there was a real important um, kind of concern about that when, when this was first um, floated, which was how do we make sure that um, in a, you know, there are some people in government who are not super keen often on ring fencing money from one income stream for something that responds to that. Um, but I think what we have seen from this bill is that there is a strong recognition at the moment none of the buying and selling of cannabis um, is taxed, so there is no ability to gain any income from um, that market and put it back into um, the appropriate health services. Um, so at, at the very kind of the foundational question, I think, about whether this will help um, in terms of making sure that appropriate health services are there, um, you know, that is, this is a, there's certainly a benefit or an improvement from, from the status quo. Um, I think the second question is to make sure that the health services are there in the places that they need to. And again, one of the benefits of this system is that we, rather than relying on having to prosecute people um, to, to, for them to ultimately end up getting support for harmful usage or for addiction um, is flipped on its head and instead we can say let's prioritize health-based services rather than relying on punishment to then connect people to services that are offered through for example in the prison system. We know that that's really important because um, rehabilitative services or um, services for drug treatment and addiction that are offered um, inside the prison system, while they have many good people working inside that system, are often undermined by all the other things that go along with criminal convictions and being in um, those controlled environments. And it's not a great, it's not basically not a great place to get support for complex um, health, often interrelated mental health um, and physical health treatment. So um, instead of that money being something that goes through and is and is ultimately costs money. Um, and is funneled through the criminal justice system. Instead, we can put it into a system that tailors to the needs of specific communities and is offered to them proactively without stigma and without shame. Um, I think there's a genuine question about how much the government is willing to proactively invest uh, before any income may be available from the cannabis control bill. Um, into mental health and addiction services, um, because obviously we want that to be in place before the uh, before the law changes. I think there have been some good announcements from the government uh, of, from this government over the past, I'd say, I think, year um, of a significant investment in mental health and addiction services. Um, it probably doesn't go far enough, but it's certainly an improvement on where we've been before, where um, you know. Um, as Tuari Portiki from, from the New Zealand Drug Foundation will talk about as someone who worked in that system for a long time, um, you know, we had this bizarre situation where um, we were punishing people for using drugs because it was bad for them, but then not offering them any support for that usage um, until they were until they were inside the prison system. And that just went because there were no beds of support services available in the community. The final thing to add, I think, is that um, 
you know, one thing that we were really pleased to see in this bill is that it specifically addresses the harms that were done by criminalisation um, to Māori communities and the need for Māori communities to benefit from the advances that will happen under legalisation if we vote yes. Um, and I think that the, the important detail there will be how much Māori communities are supported with um, appropriate kaupapa Māori health services in the communities where they are needed the most where those services are not currently provided um, or provided by, by the wrong people. Um, so that's really important. I think that um, how much of that will happen in advance is not yet clear, and I would like to see more clarity from the government on that. Um, but I think that the legislation, because it explicitly says, we have done so much harm to Māori communities with criminalisation, we need to do better, we need to make sure that people who have been have suffered the consequences of this law will benefit from the change, um, that gives me hope that we will make sure that the services and the funds will go to the people who need it. Thank you, Tanya. Mami do you want to add anything there? Uh, no, I think she summed up, did a great job summing it up. <laughs> okay. Well, just a, a, few, additional, um, a few additional points. Um, we should also note that there's provision in the bill just around um, how are we addressing um, possible underage use and trying to get that down as much as possible. Um, so I think I mentioned that there's no advertising or sponsorship that's going to be allowed. And there's also a cap on how much companies or people can um, own or control of um, the cannabis market. So 20% is the cap there. So I think, again, the government's been very mindful of the problems that we've had with other substances and is looking at other jurisdictions, particularly the US really, which I think made a big error in having a really commercialized driven market. And lots of the, 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 you know, the subsequent issues there um, are due to that. So I think that's important to note. Um, somebody's also, just quickly, somebody's also put in there that the daily limit of 14 grams seems to be um, an awful lot. Now, I have to say, I don't really know how much 14 grams of cannabis is, um, but I would say that perhaps for, you know, if you lived in a rural area, for example, or, you know, you wanted to just get your, um, the amount of cannabis that you might want for a couple of weeks or a month or something, perhaps 14 grams is not that much. So that would enable people to sort of buy, you know, like people buy their cigarettes or a couple of bottles of wine or something at the start of the week or when they get paid or something like that. And we should also note that there is no limit on alcohol either. So if cannabis was legal, I could only go and buy 14 grams of cannabis if I wanted to. Um, but I could go and buy, you know, 60 bottles of vodka if I wanted to. So I think that the government is again signaling this sort of health focused approach mm. by putting a limit on, even if perhaps to people that seems like a lot. Okay, now I'm being told that it's time to wrap up. So Mamaroa, do you want to quickly add anything to those comments? Um, I know I focused on a lot of the personal experience stuff. I think just as, yeah, I wanted to draw attention to bring it um, down from the statistics and everything we know. Um, but I also want to bring attention to an initiative that's being run on campus at Victoria Uni, and that's Yes 2020. Um, so they're a student-led um, campaign that work alongside our NZUSA and Timana Akunga. So that's a space that I'm actively working with. 
Um, so if you were inspired by this corridor and you want to go help out, um, I know that they do, they've been doing um, banner painting, I think, every Wednesday night. Um, but with the COVID restrictions, it might have changed up. But I'm just trying to encourage anyone, especially our Tawira, if, if this is something, a space you're interested in, um, especially at Victoria, there's places on campus you can actually go out and, and Rupu you can total for as well. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Kia ora. Okay. Thank you. Now, I've, I've gone a minute over, so I'm, you know, I'm going to be told off now. Um, so I just want to end by thanking our speakers um, wholeheartedly for giving up their time to come and join me on this webinar today. And thanks for the people who've asked us questions and for everybody who um, tuned in to listen to our discussion today. Um, so the last thing that I would say, whichever way you want to vote, make sure it's an informed vote. So stay away from the sensationalizing, the fear mongering, make sure you look at the evidence, make sure that your vote is an informed one and make sure that you are enrolled to vote as well, most importantly. So many thanks um, to the people who helped organize this at Victoria University and again to our speakers. So cure everybody and thank you. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.